This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, if you will, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 5. And as you're making your way to the fifth chapter of Esther, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Esther was a young Jewish woman who was born during the days of the Babylonian captivity. I should also remind you that it was during those days when Esther's parents passed away, and it's for this reason that she ended up being adopted by a close relative named Mordecai. Uh, Then came the day when the king of Persia, he sent out his servants into all the land to find the most beautiful virgins within his kingdom. And it was at that point in time when Esther was ordered to present herself uh, there at the king's palace. And after all was said and done, the king handed the rose to Esther and uh, and she she became the new queen of Persia. I like to liken this uh, this story of Esther to the bachelor meets the purge, uh, and, and you'll understand why here in a few minutes. What uh, she didn't know uh, was, was that uh, you know, her adoptive father, Mordecai, had actually angered a Persian official named Haman shortly after her wedding. Uh, and as a result, Haman sought permission uh, from the king to purge the people of Israel from the Persian Empire. And in response to this request, King Azuras, he created an official decree which gave the Persians permission to purge the people of God on the 13th day of the 12th month. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that uh, there was uh, a great deal of mourning and weeping among the Jews as their fate seemed to be sealed with that kingly decree. Well, thankfully for them, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, he's the God who knows the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. And, and he can guide us with that, with that divine uh, information. And it's for this reason that he actually providentially placed Esther in that position of queen at that point in time. And not only that, But the Lord also used her adoptive father, Mordecai, to encourage Esther to take a stand for her people. I'll remind you, it was in our study last week when Mordecai encouraged her to approach the king so that she might make supplication to him and plead before him on behalf of her people. And in response, she informed Mordecai that this might result in her execution because he didn't yet know that she was a Jewess. And you see, there's also the the rule uh, that that, uh, was basically this, that anyone who entered the inner court of the king without permission, well, they could be put to death on the spot. Well, knowing that his adopted daughter could be executed for this infraction, Mordecai encouraged her to consider the providence of God by declaring this. He says, if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love that. Mordecai was saying, hey, just consider the providence of God as you're making your decision here. And remember that he's ultimately in control. So do you want to be a part of his plan or not? As we consider this perspective, it's important for us to realize that those who are willing to disobey God for the purpose of self-preservation, well, they oftentimes find themselves suffering the outcome of their own sinful decisions. At the same time, those who are willing to serve our Savior with the self-sacrificial love of the Lord, well, we begin to discover how God is able to, to accomplish incredible things 
through the obedience of those who are willing to lay down our lives for the glory of God. And the proof of my point can be found all throughout the entire Bible. For example, remember, God used the obedience of Moses to wipe out the entire Egyptian army there in the Red Sea. Just the simple faith of one man who was willing to do what God wanted them to do, and, and God used that to completely destroy the entire Egyptian army. God also used the obedience of Gideon's small army to defeat the massive military of the Midianites. Just a faithful 300, you know, and, and God used that to overthrow the Midianites. God used the obedience of a young boy named David to defeat a giant named Goliath. And it's here in this book, Esther, where we find the Lord using the obedience of this, this young gal named Esther to stop those who were preparing to commit this horrible crime of genocide. With all this in mind, I can't help but to wonder how the Lord might use us here in these last days if we would simply set aside the desire for self-preservation and step up to serve our Savior by faith. Now, with all of this in mind, I want to turn our attention to Esther chapter 5. And if you would look with me here, beginning at verse 1, because here we learn that it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Esther. She's obeying the instructions that she received from Mordecai. And as we consider her approach, we must not fail to notice that she began by putting on her royal robes. That we, that's what we learn there in the, in the beginning of this verse. She put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. Now, it's important to, to understand here that she just, just didn't wake up, get, get out of bed, and then head to the inner courts of the king's palace. You know, she didn't leave the house like a Zoomer heading to the mall in their pajamas. No, instead she put on her royal robes. She dressed for the occasion so that her apparel and appearance wouldn't silence the message that she brought. In light of her example, I encourage every Christian to realize that the clothing we wear, it could become a hindrance to our message and our mission. You know, we're, we're called to go out and accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. And I think there are times when Christians are wearing clothes that are actually in, in conflict with our mission and message. Now listen, I, I don't mean to suggest that we need to create some sort of legalistic standard, uh, and, and yet I do agree with the instructions that we find in the scriptures. You know, I don't think we're going to have Franco checking hemlines, you know, at the door to make sure it's, you know, down to the ankle like a good Pentecostal. But I do think we need to take into consideration what the Bible actually says about wearing clothes that are modest. Paul put it plainly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he encouraged women to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word translated modest here, it speaks of that which is seeking to avoid sexual attraction. That, that's what modesty is. It's, it's seeking to avoid attracting lustful thoughts from others. What this means is that the Christian has been called to clothe themselves with modest apparel as we attempt to avoid becoming the object of lust 
in the eyes of the people around us. You know, people often complain about how cold it is in our auditorium, and my response is typically, well, it keeps the women fully clothed and the men awake. You know, so there's a, there's a, the people that are typically complaining are the ones that are typically needing maybe a couple more layers of clothing. You know, I don't know, just saying. But it's sad to say that the church is filled with nominal Christians who are not only dressing immodestly when they go to work, when they go to the gym, when they go to the store, when they go, come to church, but they also fill their social media accounts with selfies that leave very little to the imagination. And listen, it's not just the ladies posting gym pics in their yoga pants and halter tops. The church is also filled with guys who are trying to look as sexy as they can as they post their silly pics in the hopes of getting more clicks. And it's sad to say that the church is filled with these sorts of narcissists who aren't interested in maintaining a life of modesty as we're called to. Christian, listen, we've been called to wear modest apparel so that we don't cause others to stumble. The Christian who buys and wears clothes in, in, in the hopes of attracting sexual attention or, or lustful uh, looks from others, they're sinning. It's sin. And the re- reason I say this is because the scriptures tell us to dress modestly. And not only should we dress modestly in order to you know, help others to not look at us lustfully, but we should also dress modestly so that our apparel isn't a distraction from our message and mission. I don't mean to suggest that we need to put on the royal robes every time we leave the house. You know, I'm not encouraging guys to wear a three-piece suit before you, you know. And, but I do think we ought to consider a, a very simple question. What does the Lord Jesus think about the way we're dressing? What would Jesus say if he were here critiquing what I was wearing? I think that Jesus would look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. The biblical beard, you know, like says it all right there. But but no, seriously, you know what? We ought to ask ourselves, we ought to ask ourselves, you know, what would Jesus say about the way I'm dressed? Listen, before you purchase that, that outfit or before you post that sexy pic, you know, the one in the bathroom where your face is kind of covered, but your abs can be seen, you know, that, you know, that pic. Before you post that pic, you might take just a moment to ask, is this pleasing to the king of kings? With this question in mind, I want to consider how the king of Persia responded to the unsolicited, unsolicited visit from fully robed Queen Esther here. If you would, let's turn our attention now back to Esther chapter 5. I want you to look with me here at verse 2, because here we learn that it was when the king saw, uh, it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And here in this verse, we find the king. He's announcing his acceptance of this unannounced visit by extending the royal scepter. You know, this is the, this is the same way I, when Jeremy enters the office when I'm studying. I, if I hold out the scepter to him, <laughs> he can come in. If not... <laughs> But listen, you know, 
if he hadn't extended the royal scepter, the royal guard would have arrested Esther on the spot and prepared for her execution. Thankfully for her, she found favor in the eyes of the king. Now that word favor is translated from a Hebrew word which can also be rendered grace. For example, this is the same Hebrew word that Moses used in Genesis chapter 6. It's verse 8 where we learn that Noah found grace, favor, in the eyes of the Lord. I'll remind you, the world was completely given over to every depraved desire, and therefore the Lord was grieved and he was preparing to wipe the entirety of mankind from the face of the earth. But Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. As a result, Noah and his family were saved by the grace of God. In similar fashion, every born-again believer has also been saved by the grace or the favor of God. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Ephesians chapter 2. It's there where he declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Christian, listen, every sinner who approaches the king of kings, we could be executed on the spot because of our sins. Thankfully for us, the Lord has extended the scepter of salvation to every single sinner. Much like Esther, who avoided execution as she embraced the gracious scepter of the king, listen, those who embrace the scepter of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, well, we're saved from the punishment that we deserve. And listen, those who embrace the scepter of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, we also receive the privilege of being able to present our prayer requests to our king. Now with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Esther uh, chapter 5 here. I want to begin reading there at verse 3. Here we learn that the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now if this were me, I would have been at that moment like, okay, half the kingdom, thank you. But Esther was more spiritual than I would have been. It's in verse four where she answers, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, uh, here in these verses, we learn about the way that King Ahasuerus granted Esther the privilege of presenting him with her supplications. And as we get to chapter 7, uh, we're going to learn about the way that Esther's sincere supplication was a royal request that ultimately saved her people from certain death. As we continue to make our way through this incredible book, we're going to see how the Lord used the obedient faith of Esther to save the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. For the sake of our study tonight, I just want to take some time to consider how, much like Esther, our supplications can aid in the salvation of others. I want to consider how Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's there where he declares, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Christian, listen, the king of kings wants to save every single sinner. 
He desires every person to be saved. He wants every person to come to the knowledge of the truth. And while it's true that he won't force anyone to enter the kingdom, it's also true that he's called every Christian to present him with our supplications as we pray for the salvation of those who don't, don't yet believe in him. That's why Paul tells us to, that, that he exhorts us to, to pray, to present supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks for all men. Why? Because God desires all to be saved. With this as the goal, we can rejoice in knowing that we can boldly approach the throne of grace with our prayerful supplications. This is precisely the point that Paul was making in Hebrews chapter 4. It's there where he declares, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, listen. Those who have embraced the scepter of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, we can now come boldly to the throne of grace so that we can present our supplications to our king. And as we pray for the salvation of our unbelieving loved ones, we should also ask the Lord to help us. We need to pray for help so that we might lead them to the Lord. Please trust me when I tell you that the Lord... He not only wants to save every unbeliever, but he also wants to use us to plead with them so that they might be reconciled to him. Therefore, when we pray for our unbelieving loved ones, let's make sure that we're asking our king for the help that we need so that we can lead them to the grace of God, which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. Don't just pray for their salvation. Pray for their salvation and at the same time pray that you might be used in bringing them to Christ. And listen, as we present this supplication to our Savior, I encourage you to remember the promise that the Apostle John presented in 1 John chapter 5. It's verses 14 and 15 where he declares, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If we pray according to the will of God, then we can be certain that God is going to answer those prayers according to his will. If we ask the Lord to help us to lead our lost loved ones to him, how do you think he's going to respond to that prayer request? He's going to give us the help. He's going to help us because he desires that all men and women come to to know him. It's for this reason that I encourage you to present these prayers and supplications for every unbeliever so that they might embrace the scepter of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we should pray for the wisdom that we need so that we can be used to lead them to the Lord. Not only that, but we should also pray for the wisdom that we need so that we can properly deal with the Haman's of this world. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to remember that the Lord's ways are always higher than our ways. The Lord's ways are always higher than our ways. And with that being the case, you know, listen, the way that he wants us to deal with the Hamans of this world, well, his ways are oftentimes different from the way that we would deal with those who are antagonistic to the people of God. 
For example, I want to consider how the Lord led Esther to host a second banquet for the man who was planning to slaughter her, her, her people. Uh, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Here we read, At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now here in these verses we find Esther asking her husband the king and Haman to join her for a second banquet. And as I consider the way that Esther was preparing yet another banquet for the enemy of her people, I can't help but to remember something that King David wrote in in Psalm 23. It's there where he says, Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. How incredible is that? I don't know about you, but I'd rather not share a meal with my enemies. Unless it's me serving them up a knuckle sandwich, right? Who wants to have a banquet in the presence of their enemies? And yet there are times when our good shepherd will lead us to sit down at the dinner table with our enemies. And there are times when the Lord won't avenge us until after we've shown his grace to those who have hurt us. It's so important to understand that. There are times when the Lord is waiting to avenge us because we simply won't be gracious to those who have hurt us. With that being the case, we ought to spend some time praying before we seek our own revenge. Because if we seek our own revenge, then chances are we're going to be the one getting the spanking. We ought to prayerfully seek the wisdom of the Lord before we attempt to deal with those who antagonize us. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. We just read this on Sunday. It's verses 19 through 21 where, the, where, where Paul declares this. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be Overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's basically saying if, you're, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If he doesn't have fire in his house, provide him with a way to start that fire. Prepare a banquet table for your enemy. And in this way, we overcome evil with good. We've been called to leave the business of vengeance up to the Lord. And as we wait for the day of his judgment, we've been called to overcome evil with good. And all I can say is, God, help us. Because in our flesh, we're always going to take the road of vengeance. This is why we need to spend time presenting prayerful supplications to the Lord so that we might have the wisdom we need 
to actually accomplish what God wants to accomplish, even when we interact with those we consider to be our enemies. But this has the goal, let's continue to consider how the kindness of Esther was creating the conditions for Haman's ultimate judgment. And if you would look with me again here at Esther chapter 5, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 9, because here we learn that Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Here in these verses we find Haman, he's revealing the hatred that was still in his heart. His heart was filled with hatred for Mordecai. And we must not fail to notice how quickly his narcissistic happiness turned into murderous rage. And, you know, on the one hand, Haman was happier than he'd ever been because he got this special attention from Queen Esther. He had been invited to one and then a second banquet, and he's all excited about all of this. He's, you know, got all the money. He's got all the kids. He's got all the, he's got all the best in life. And he's filled with joy. But then after leaving the first banquet, his happiness was immediately replaced with rage the very minute he saw Mordecai. Now, in order to understand why the sight of Mordecai made him want to murder every single Israelite, I should take a moment to remind you that this was the Jewish man, Mordecai, who refused to bow a knee before Haman. Yeah, Mordecai had refused to bow a knee before Haman. And he couldn't stand it. He couldn't handle the fact that there was this Jewish guy who wouldn't pay him his due respect. And yet at the same time, here's this Jewish gal who because of her attention, because of her promotion you know, of him, you know, she, he, he made, this, this gal made him happier than he'd ever been. What he failed to realize is that Esther was a Jewess. Not only that, but she was the adopted daughter of the, of the very man he hated the most. Now, when we get to chapter 7, we'll learn about the day when Haman will discover that he had unknowingly ordered the execution of Mordecai's adopted daughter, the very woman who had given him the special attention there with that banquet. At the same time, he will also discover that he unwittingly arranged the execution of the queen of Persia. It's not going to work out well for him. Spoiler alert. He's going to be judged. But listen, it's also interesting to note that the fate of Haman was not only sealed by this Jewish woman named Esther, but also his fate was sealed by the encouragement of his own wife. Now with this in mind, let's consider the final verse of this chapter. Look with me there at verse 14. Here we learn that his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. And in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. 
Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Here in this verse, we find Haman's wife and all of his friends, they're getting ready for the purge. One way they did this was by encouraging Haman to build the nicest, largest gallows in all the land. And this could be a real, you know, this could be a, a, a real statement piece for the beginning of the slaughter of the Jews. Unfortunately for him, these would be the very gallows which would end his time here on the planet. I mean, that's an incredible twist. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan would be impressed with this twist. Yet that's exactly what happened. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, I should take a moment to point out that all of this could have been avoided had Haman simply humbled himself. If he, would, if he had simply humbled himself, you see, it was his pride that led him down this perverse path. It was his pride that led him to hatch this plan to purge the Persian Empire of, of every Israelite, simply because one guy wouldn't bow down before him. One guy wouldn't give him his, his due respect. This was the pride that led him to everlasting destruction. And what Haman failed to realize is that pride will always lead us down a path of destruction. I like the way that Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 16. There he declares, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. From this we can see that those who are filled with foolish pride are on a path that leads them to destruction. Conversely, those who will simply humble themselves will learn to heed the instructions of God's word. You see, you, you have to be humble to heed the instructions of God's word. The proud person reads the Bible and says, yeah, that's not for me. Or I'll pick and choose what I like and what I don't like. The proud person thinks that they sit in judgment over the Bible and have the power to determine what's good for them and what's not. The humble person simply heeds the instructions of God's word and applies it to their lives. These are the people who humbly enjoy the good fruits of faith as we walk with the Lord. With this as the goal, I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Esther. As we follow in the footsteps of Esther, we obtain the good testimony of those who are walking in the obedience of faith. You see, true faith will lead us to obedience. True faith will lead us to obedience. And in that walk of obedience with the Lord, we begin to bear good fruit. We begin to enjoy the blessings that are promised to those who walk according to the commandments of Christ Jesus. And all of this is pleasing to the Lord as we walk by faith. I think Paul put it best in Hebrews chapter 11. It's verse 6 where he declares, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who want to please the Lord should learn how to walk by faith 
and not by sight. In all humility, let's walk by faith, and we walk by faith with Jesus Christ. And what that looks like is that we do what Jesus is leading us to do. We follow the commands that that Christ has given us. We accomplish the great commission according to the calling of Christ. And while it's true that this walk of faith will result in many trials and troubles along the way, listen, the path of self-preservation is nothing but pride. The path of self-preservation will lead us away from the walk of faith. Because self-preservation reckons the whole thing out and reasons it all out and figures it out. Well, well if I obey Christ here, then I'm going to lose my job or I'm going I'm to have to give up this and that. This is going to hurt me. And you know, we, try to, we try to reason it all out and try to figure it all out according to our very finite understanding. And all of that just simply leads us down a path of pride, which then results in our destruction. Faith leads us to look at what the word says. We heed what the word says. We apply it to our lives. We become doers of the word, not hearers only. And then God blesses that. And in this way, we see how he takes people of faith, people who just have a simple faith, and he uses us in incredible ways. Esther was just a a simple gal who took a step of faith according to the, the leading of the Lord. And God used her to save all of her people. Incredible. What can God do in our lives if we simply walk by faith with him? With that, I encourage you, let's, let's have the joy of knowing that those who set out to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord can also rejoice in knowing that we will eventually receive the everlasting rewards that come from our Redeemer. And with that, I encourage you to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray.